Saints of God, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, either the ones you brought or the ones that are provided there in the pew in front of you, to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, the third chapter, Genesis chapter 3. reading and preaching of the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. It's a privilege to read, it's a privilege to preach both and remind you that this is the word of God himself. Now the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field, Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the word of God. Amen. Shall we seek the Lord's blessing? The preaching of his word. Spread a table before us, O Lord, as we gather in the fellowship of this place with you and with one another. Spread a table for us, even in the presence of our enemies. This particular table, we ask, may it equip us know our great enemy, to resist his wiles. So we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you remember the way the Apostle Paul concludes his book of Ephesians. It's a very famous treatise on spiritual warfare, and it begins, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, older translations put it, the wiles of the devil. Kids, what is a wile? Well, a wile is a cunning strategy for fooling someone for enticing someone, you might even say for entrapping someone, someone who's wily has a kind of evil ingenuity by which they seek to lead others into harm by deceiving. When I was a little boy, there was a cartoon on Saturday morning that included a, a figure, he was a coyote, uh, and he was trying to catch a bird 
who was a roadrunner, and very clever cartoon. His name was Wild E. Coyote. And of course, that has, for me, made the word wily to be just an amusing association of mind. Someone in the cartoon, perhaps, who has ultimately futile and harmless efforts to hurt someone else. But as I talk to you this morning, on, as we look in Genesis 3 at the wiles of the devil, it would be better for us to have a, a much more sobering picture in our minds of someone who is wily. We're not all fans of Shakespeare, I realize, but some of you at least know the story that he devotes to unpacking just how ingenious an evil man can be. It's the play Othello. Othello is a nobleman, a military ruler, the city of Venice. Desdemona is his loyal and devoted wife. Iago is a lowly ensign in the army who's passed over by Othello for another man for promotion. And now Iago is consumed with fury and envy, all rooted in pride, and he plots revenge against Othello. What is the revenge that he will seek to bring on this man? Well, he will by every trick of deceit slowly, inexorably seek to persuade Othello that his wife is untrue. Iago shows a kind of devilish wiliness. And even though Othello is initially quite resistant to any faintest suggestion that Desdemona is unfaithful to him, eventually doubts take root. And Iago leads Othello in an unholy conversion of perspective about his wife. Finally, he becomes persuaded. She's unfaithful. Jealous rage, he murders his wife, only to find out immediately she was falsely accused. She was faithful all along. If you've read Othello, you are staggered by the skill of William Shakespeare in presenting a man so like the devil. That's the sense in which I use the word, the wiles of the devil. We are going to be looking at the original Iago. And we're not just going to be doing this out of some kind of morbid fascination with how bad he is. We're going to be studying his playbook, if you will. The one he still uses in our lives. And our goal, brothers and sisters, our goal this morning is to have not only a purer and more knowing hatred of this person who is God's enemy and our enemy, but we're also wanting to be able to stand against 
his wiles. Now, that would certainly seem to be the intention of the inspired author in giving us this account. He certainly appears to want us to know the way of Satan by the way he chooses what he'll talk about. There's little reason to doubt that there's probably more said between Satan and Eve than just what's recorded here. Uh, Moses is condensing, he's selecting what will be recorded for us to know. It's hard to imagine there wasn't some kind of preliminaries when the, sa- when the serpent first began to speak. But here's what Moses wants us to know. He wants us to know what the serpent said that proved to be so seductive to Eve. We're going to see the serpent's words in three parts. One question, two assertions. Did God say, you'll not die, you'll be like God? Let's look at those three things that Satan says through the serpent to our first mother. We begin, Satan the serpent says to the woman, did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan's temptation is beginning with a seemingly innocent question. Just one creature to another creature. A question about God's word. The serpent's acting as if he knows there's been a rule established for life in the garden, but he's a bit surprised. He is under the impression that God has said to Adam and to Eve, no eating from the trees of the garden. And he says to Eve, is it actually true? He acts incredulous. You know, of course, Satan is blatantly misrepresenting God's word to Adam and Eve. In all that feigned ignorance, he's actually trying to cast God in a deplorable light. As if God, children, as if God would fill the garden with trees with luscious fruit and then to say to his children, Adam and Eve, no eating the fruit of the trees. That'd be like your parents taking you to a candy store, spending many, many minutes there and saying, oh, but we're only here to look. Satan is misrepresenting God. But there's something more subtle than this blatant misrepresentation of God. Something that he's doing behind it. Uh, He's not just misrepresenting God's one rule about eating from the trees of the garden. Something that is actually going to be relatively easy for Eve to notice and to correct. He's doing something behind this so much more insidious. He's introducing into Eve's mind something would otherwise be unthinkable for her, the idea that God would create but withhold something good. That's the idea that's first proposed by this question. Eve will say, as we'll see, oh no, virtually every tree in the garden is given to us to eat. Eve will be quick to say, and you can imagine Satan's response, oh, 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 my mistake. But still there's one tree, isn't there? It's beautiful to the eyes and good for food. And Oh, I see, he said you may not have 
of that tree. You see what he's doing. This is just the first stage of his seduction of Eve, but he's content just thus far. Just putting this idea out there for consideration. God withholds good things from his people. He's exaggerated what God has forbidden in order to draw attention. Well, he did forbid one thing. And he's going to go on to suggest this is not in your best interest. Now, we're studying this morning Satan's words, but Moses includes Eve's initial answer to the first question. Uh, And you see that the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what do you think of Mother Eve here? How does she do so far? She's answering the question. And I have to tell you that after millennia of scrutiny given to just how Eve responds, uh, the jury is divided on how she does. There are those who see that uh, Eve sets the record straight on what God says. God said we may not eat of the fruit of one tree and not even touch it. She corrects Satan's blatant misrepresentation. And she affirms that this is because the tree brings death. So some people say Eve does quite well. There's a whole other school of thought that see in what Eve says things true and right and already wobbly. As she speaks of the fruit of the tree bringing death, she exaggerates God's rule. We may not even touch it, she says. Now, that's something new. That's not something that was revealed. God's rule was simple. Do not eat. It would well have been pious, we could say, for Adam and Eve to teach their children. You may not even touch that tree. Yes. But Eve is, many would see, following Satan's lead in adding to what God has prohibited. And then there's that word, lest we die. Apparently in the Hebrew that word can convey some doubt, some certainty, and others see in her words that she's softening the certainty of death. It brings the risk of death rather than the certainty of death. I say to you, I, I, I don't know for certain how we should evaluate Eve in her response. I found myself gravitating from where I was at the start, very much in the first category of exonerating Eve of all impropriety, to the second. I actually am inclined to think Moses records for us her words with such care in order to show us Eve getting wobbly. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're concerned to see what Satan's first wile is. Can I put it that way? The wiles of the devil, number one. Satan is here seeking to sow doubt about the goodness of God and particularly the goodness of his law. That's his first 
scheme. Our fathers would say Satan is trying to introduce into Eve a hard thought of God. The sense that there's been something inadequate about his care for her. His kindness to her. And particularly, he's focusing on this prerogative that God has exercised to tell Eve what she may not do. That's law. And this prerogative to tell Eve what she may not do, uh, Satan wants her to suspect some lack of goodness in that prohibition. Uh, Folks, don't we all find it harder to obey someone that we're convinced doesn't really care about us? It's just naturally harder for us to render obedience to someone we've come to be convinced doesn't give a rep about how we are and who we are and what's good for us. Conversely, it's so much easier to obey somebody that you know loves you, that you know is seeking your good, And so this is where Satan begins. He begins to seek to erode Eve's confidence that when God said, you may not, he had only thoughts of love for her and his law. And sisters, this is how Satan begins his temptations to you, to be disobedient to God's law. Not where he ends, necessarily, but it's where he begins. In tempting you to disobedience to his law. Allow me to speak plainly. Let's take first the fourth commandment. God forbids all ordinary labor on the Sabbath day in order that we can devote ourselves in all sincerity and joy to fellowship with him. Some of us in our 24-7 society are profaning the Sabbath day because we've come to have doubts about whether it's really good for us. The fifth commandment speaks to our submitting ourselves to those God has placed in authority in our lives, even if they are not themselves worthy of our respect. Some of us are rebellious. Those in authority in our lives because we've come to doubt that God got this right for our good in placing us under those authorities. The sixth commandment requires us to love our enemies and to pray for those who make our life difficult Some of us are nursing grievances against our enemies and those who make our life difficult. We are indulging in bitterness and it stems from the flip side of doubt in God's goodness. You know what the flip side of that is? It's called self-pity. Self-pity. God's not watch out for my good. That person wouldn't be a part of my life. So we are justifying breaking his law to love our enemies. Seventh commandment, God forbids. He says no 
the pursuit of sexual satisfaction outside of the marriage partner he gives to us. Some of you are feeding your lusts with the excuse celibacy or faithfulness to one spouse is just not reasonable. That's a bit much for God to ask. You see what Satan is doing to you? Your disobedience is growing out of doubt. And when God says to you what you are or are not to do, he doesn't really have your good at heart. Brothers and sisters, if you're honest about your besetting sins, you'll find somewhere at the root of them hard thoughts of God. Which is to say, self-pity. That's for Satan's first ambition to plant that in Eve's mind. We're just watching his initial engagement. The story will show he has apparent success. Did God say? Let's move on to the second thing that Satan says through the mouth of the serpent in Genesis 3. Not only the question, did God say, but now the assertion in verse 4, you'll not die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The first while was very subtle. Each one that comes after is more and more brazen, outrageous, Satan Calvin says, now springs more boldly forward, and because he sees a breach open before him, he breaks through in a direct assault. We're going to come back to verse 5 in just a moment. I'm just interested in the words, in all their chilling nature. Verse 4, you will not surely die. Now, Satan has gone to deceiving, not just sowing doubt. He's deceiving, but it's deception at more than one level. The most obvious deception that's found in these words is Satan saying, God's not telling you the truth. It's breathtaking. Think about it. Satan is inviting Eve to decide for herself whether God is telling the truth. You hear that? He wants Eve to take up this prerogative to weigh the trustworthiness of God's words. God has said you will die, but is it really so? Do you realize if Eve even for a moment takes this up, if she weighs this and places this under consideration, she will be placing herself above God. She'll be in judgment over God's words. It's breathtaking. Satan is actually calling on Eve to conclude God is a liar. Before he'd suggested that he's not as good as she might have thought, 
Now he's boldly asserting that God hasn't been as honest as she might have thought. This great deceiver is seeking to convince Eve that God is the deceiver. Your blood run cold. Satan is trying to rob God of one of the things most precious to his father's heart. The implicit trust of his children. The confidence in his children. God speaks the truth to them. Satan is certainly saying God is not telling the truth. But look more specifically at the kind of lie he accuses God of. It's not just that God is not telling the truth. He's not telling the truth, Satan would have Eve believe, about the consequences of sin. So Eve, in her response, had put together what God had put together. Uh, She had said, no, no, if we eat of that particular tree, we will die. God has joined those two things, eating and dying. The serpent is trying to separate those two things, eating, which is disobedient, and death, which is the mystery that comes from it. If eating the forbidden fruit would have brought death, well, then it it was good for God to forbid it, right? If it actually would bring death, then God was being good when he forbade it. But if eating the forbidden fruit would bring good things, well, then God was lying about the consequences of disobeying him. He's doing something for the first time that he's done countless times. Tell me if this sounds at all familiar. He's whispered it in your ear, certainly in the ears of those you know. God tries to make us do things by scaring us. He uses fear tactics. He tells us that will hurt us, but it really won't. It's a big bluff. There's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, the very thing that God is calling lethal, it's actually life-changingly good for you. Does any of this sound familiar? We live awash in that kind of notion. John Milton does something ingenious in this respect, as he depicts Satan, and admittedly in some fanciful ways in his book, Paradise Lost, uh, he depicts the serpent at this moment in the conversation holding himself up to Eve as evidence that eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually very good. Watch this. As Milton retells the story, Eve's, of course, very surprised to see a serpent that's speaking to her and immediately asks, quite understandably, how he came to have this wondrous ability to to speak. To which the serpent replies in Milton's telling, Ah, fair lady, I was once like all the other beasts of the field and had no knowledge of how to speak. Then I came upon a certain tree 
And I ate of that tree, and it has transformed me. And now I can know and speak. Well, of course, that's not in the Bible. Milton is doing something in his fertile imagination that's very insightful. He's seeing in Satan the desire to reverse the connection between sin and misery. No, it's not that misery comes from disobedience, but good. Just look at me. Can we pause a minute and just say, what damnable deceit from the angel who has just been cast from heaven for his disobedience and rebellion against God. He knows the lie that he's telling. While number two, Satan has said you'll not die. What is while number two? Satan's denying the truth about the consequences of sin. One of my favorite commentators has this little passing comment. The first doctrine ever to be denied in the earth is the doctrine of judgment for sin. You will not certainly die. You know why Satan has to deceive Eve about this. You know why he has to separate those two things for you in order to lead you into sin. He has to separate sin from its God-ordained consequences of misery and judgment. He has to do this because all of us are naturally created with this very powerful instinct at self-preservation. We don't naturally want to do things that will harm us. No one ever hated his own flesh, Paul says, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So if Satan is going to tempt us to do that which is self-destroying... He'll have to first deceive us. At the very least, he'll have to minimize the consequences of sin. And oh, how staggeringly successful he is in doing it. Did Jeffrey Epstein really believe that he would forever get away with that? I mean, that, I won't go into that. All that stuff? Did he really? Do all the people that he facilitated such sin with, do they really to this day believe they're going to get away with that? That they will not die for that? It's not just in hardened men of the world. We see this deception that has separated sin from its consequences You experienced it last week. Some of you perhaps went through that cycle of judges that Justin was leading us through in the gospel implications of. 
You have a certain sin you slide into and you continue in. And then the consequences come and there's shame and there's guilt and there's all the ruin of it and you repent and you turn back to God and he is gracious and merciful and then you wash and repeat. Why? Why would we ever go back to what hard experience should make crystal clear it's just miserable when I do that? Because there's a very real person who's talking to you. Just to say, we Christians believe that Satan talks to us just like he talked to Eve. That's what we believe. He talks to you. We often speak of as a whisper. And he says, in the moment of temptation, it'll be fine. No one will know. It's not that big a deal. And whatever the case, it's worth it. He's talking the same way. He's talked to Eve. You'll not really die. While number one, sowing doubts about the goodness of God, specifically his law. While number two, denying the truth about the consequences of sin. While number three comes looking at the third thing, Satan says, I've summarized it, you'll be like God. I said that Satan gets more and more brazen each stage of this, and you might wonder how could Satan get any more brazen than calling God a liar? Well, he does. Verse 5. This is the final thrust of his attack. The most violent, actually. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now what's Satan doing? I'll put it this way. He is offering Eve a whole new interpretation of her world. You might say he's offering her a different worldview than the one God gave her. Indeed, it is the one God gave her turned inside out. A view of the world in which God is not good. He's selfish. A view of the world in which the forbidden tree doesn't bring death, but life. And a world in which disobedience towards God is not the way to fall from God-likeness, it's the way to attain to God-likeness. Can you believe it? That he's actually going for broke? Whatever it means, for Adam and Eve's eyes to be opened to know good and evil, Satan is portraying that as not just a good thing, 
but the very thing God doesn't want. And that for one reason, he wants to be the only one who possesses this well-being of knowledge. He's saying, Eve, the experience God acts like he's trying to spare you from is actually something he's trying to keep from you. You've been seeing it all wrong, Eve. Let me tell you how the world really is. Trust me, Eve. God can't be trusted. Give the devil his due. That, that is asking a lot of Eve. You take everything God said, turn it upside down. Eve, that is what is true. The fellow's wife loved him. Tiago persuaded fellow, my wife despises me. Satan is seeking the same unholy conversion of perspective about God. Now that's pretty wicked. But I want you to see the way he does it which is even more despicable. So Satan is trying to pull off quite a feat. He's going to take this lavishly generous creator God who's given Adam and Eve everything they could possibly want. And he's going to turn him into a petty, stingy, selfish deity. Now how's he going to pull that off? Well, Satan reaches for the essential gradient of all master deception. The truth. Satan cloaks this reprehensible lie about God in various rock-solid truths. And so he leverages the power of truth to make his power play of deception. This, this is important. You need to see this. It's really not hard to demonstrate from our text because our author seems to go out of his way to demonstrate that what Satan says in verse 4 about eating the fruit of the tree contains truth. It comes true. So, for example, verse 4, Satan says, your eyes will be opened. Look at verse 7, what Moses tells us about Adam and Eve after they eat the fruit. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. In verse 4, Satan says, you will be like God. Look ahead at chapter 3, verse 22. We read God saying... Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Satan in verse 4 says, You will know good and evil. And again in verse 22 of chapter 3, 
the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Do you see it? This is Satan's final play. This is his finishing touch on his seduction of Eve. He's going to go for broke. He's going to turn inside out her whole view of the world and the God who made it. And how's he going to do it? He's going to tell the truth. He is going to lie by means of the truth. Their eyes will indeed be open, but only in a way that instantly brings unspeakable shame and guilt. They will know good and evil, but only because they will fall from the state of one into the state of the other. And indeed, they will become like God. They'll become acquainted with things that only God and his holy angels knew of before. And they will curse the day he ever sought to be anything other than what God had created them to be. Satan is a genius. He's weaving his lie with the yarn of truth, truths mistold. And you know why this is his third while? Because he knows there's power in truth. This is what motivates men to do things, to do great things. It's truth. He wants to motivate Eve to do more than doubt God. He wants to motivate her to do something bold and courageous and decisive to join him in rebellion. Pure lies can destroy a man. It happens every day. It takes the truth, or at least some portion of it, to motivate him. Someone has compared it to old-fashioned rat poison. 96% good cornmeal, 4% arsenic. Satan knows the greatest lies won't work. They just won't work unless they contain a great deal of truth. So this is while number three, hiding a soul-damning lie behind the truth. Friends, this is so very instructive to us living in our time. I want you to look for this while of the devil in all the great deceptions that Satan has perpetrated in the world. The great engines of evil, if we may speak so, involve distortions of truth. They gain their power and the loyalty of those who are deceived by means of that 96% cornmeal. Marxism, 
gain tremendous motivating power in the 20th century and now in, in renewed ways in the 21st century because Karl Marx spoke some truth. He said, you separate a man who works from the product of his labor can be demoralizing. Indeed. Feminism would never have transformed our culture apart from the truth found within it. Male societies for millennia have been guilty of oppression of women. Today's gender fluidity, insanity, likewise cobbles its error from certain undeniable truths. Societies in the world do have differing ways in which they have determined men and women will behave. So the non sequitur is gender is nothing more than a social construct. I ask you, is it true that minorities and minorities within minorities have been oppressed throughout the history of mankind? It's undeniably, it's profoundly, it's tragically true. And so there's truth at the very center of what we call this woke ideology, intersectionality, critical race theory. None of these worldviews, I submit to you, would have the power that they have apart with, from some measure of truth. You say, Pastor, I don't see anything but lies in those ideologies. I say to you, grow up. Be wise. Know your enemy. He knows what it takes to deceive and to motivate men to join him in his rebellion. You see a hollow, deceptive philosophy at work in our world, and you don't know the kernel of truth that's found in it. You're missing not just the genius of the enemy. You're lacking the ability to effectively confront it. It's not enough, Christian, to just say, that's a lie. Because it's typically not just a lie. And you're concerned not just with resisting the enemy. You're concerned, rightly, to deliver others from his deception. So you need to discern. Within the lie, the truth from the error. This is what I see the church failing so miserably to do. They are on the one hand able to see this glint of truth in the larger excrement of an ideology. And they say, it's true, it's true. See, it's true. On the other hand, Christians can only see the excrement. We can't say to those who are sucked in that ideology, this is true. And the rest is also true. So do this the next time you're listening. CNBC. Ask yourself, what is the truth in the midst of this godless ideology that's giving it trouble? 
and the guidance of the deaf. For that matter, do this the next time you're listening to a false teacher of the Bible. You recognize that ain't right. Ask yourself, what is the genuine biblical insight that he's pressing all out of shape into contradicting the rest of the Bible? Folks, just do this the next time you get into an argument with someone in your family. And you're insisting on this being the case, and he or she is insisting that this is the case, and you, what do you know? You both have got your eye on some element of truth that's blinding you to all that is untrue. Oh, what you're actually saying. We all, in the moment, want to just think, it's just true. Or it's just not true. Ever since Satan entered the garden. Oh, brothers and sisters. Many shades of truth. Thanks to him. Thanks to him. We're going to return to consider what it meant. For Adam and Eve to have their eyes opened. No good and evil will come back to that. For now I've wanted you to see. Satan's wild number three, hiding a soul-damning error behind the truth. Well, I make no apologies, brothers and sisters. This morning has been rather grim, hopefully quite sobering. We've been making a study, after all, of the devil his wicked wiles. Paul, in another place, says we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's been my ambition, that we not be outwitted by virtue of our ignorance of his designs. So look for the lie behind the truths that evil, evil men tell. See through to the true misery that all sin brings. Brothers and sisters, this for your encouragement. For all the sophistication, I surely hope you've seen some sophistication in our enemies' schemes. For all of that sophistication... Here's the most important element of your defense against him. It's childlike confidence in God's goodness. Remember? That's where Satan starts. If he can't get past that, he's got nothing else to do. That's where he starts. Here's the encouragement for you. A child, by the grace of God, could have resisted Satan's temptation in the garden. A child could have. A child who said, my father loves me and only does what's good for me. A child now who has the teaching of Psalm 84 in his own soul. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You make that your unshakable confidence by the grace of God. And you've done the greater part. 
being ready to resist the enemy. And I'll just close by making this observation to you. You have even more reason than Eve. You have even more reason than Eve to be confident that God withholds no good thing from his people. He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have gathered to do what our great enemy hates more than anything else. Perhaps especially today, as we've made him our study from your inspired word. We pray that you will equip us with deep insight, yes, into the difference between his lies and his truths. We pray that you would cause us to see through his clouding of the connection between our disobedience and our absolute misery. Give us this in the moments that we most need it, even the week that's to come. But in it all, we pray that you would furnish us with the greatest defense against his wiles, giving us the confidence of a child who knows his father's heart for all, even despite appearances, all is good, he says and does. Lord God, do not let Satan rob you, this confidence we have in you, oh Lord, deliver us from the evil one. We pray in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.